Welcome to this special JuxCast podcast series about the upcoming Reclosure 2021 conference. We are going to have a brief conversation with our speakers, asking them some questions about their life and job to get to know them a little bit better. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Christopher Small, who describes himself as a full-stack engineer specializing in data science. He's currently working with the Computational Democracy Project. Christopher is offering a workshop for this year's conference on the subject of Turing OS, notebooks, visualization, and web apps. Oh my. Christopher, thanks for being here today. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. Great, great. And we always like to start this sort of interview with a little icebreaker question. It's the standard one. Christopher, uh, what is your favorite pizza topping? Um, let's see. I... I love mushrooms on pizza and, and not just any mushroom, but like, you know, if you can get some chanterelles or morels or something, you know, something, something wild and, um, and, uh, delicious, uh, those, those tend to be my favorites. Uh, maybe the little sausage on there. Cool. Cool. Sounds very appetizing. Wouldn't mind trying that myself. So moving on then, Chris, how did you get into computing and what excites you about software and technology in general? Yeah, so I started working with computers uh, back in school. Uh, I was studying for a math degree and was um, kind of straddling the worlds of pure and applied mathematics. And so, you know, taking some um, some more applied courses and in doing some physics projects on the side, because I also had a passion for physics, um, started to get introduced to Mathematica. Um, and uh, it's really exciting this year that uh, one of our keynotes is actually going to be from Stephen Wolfram himself. Um, so that's that's very exciting. But um, yeah, but um, so that sort of started me off. And uh, I, I worked on projects, you know, doing, um, you know, at, at that sort of phase of things, a lot of what I was doing with Mathematica was really, you know, visualizations, solving differential equations, um, you know, numerical simulations, stuff like that. Um, but my first real, my first real programming in sort of a, you know, kind of general programming sense, or which, which you might call software engineering, um, was working with Ruby on Rails, building um, laboratory information management systems. Um, and um, from there, uh, you know, um, yeah, sort of wound my way slowly around to Clojure, which I'm, which I'm immensely happy with. Cool, cool. And what excites you about software and technology in general? Yeah, I think it's the sort of ability to create a world. Um, a logical world. Um, again, you know, I studied math in, in college and, um, and, and, you know, and, and was really into logic and, you know, the foundations of mathematics. And what really excites me about computers is that you have the ability to sort of create these entire worlds. Um, and I mean, sometimes if you're gaming or something, it's actually sort of literally like a world, but, um, but just there's this, there's this sense of freedom and, um, you know, amazing power there that, that I just really find thrilling. Cool. You're not the first person to mention this. A lot of our interviewees have expressed a similar sentiment, this ability to world create from, you know, the software and the technology you're giving. So a very common thread there. Now then, do you have any computer science heroes? They could obviously be living or not with us anymore that you would love to have a drink with if you had the chance to. And what may you ask if you had the chance? So can I can I cheat a little bit on this and give you a um, a mathematician sort of slash uh, logician? Of course, there's no rules in this podcast. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, t- I'll tie it into computer science though. So um, 
one of the characters from history of, you know, math and science um, that most fascinates me was Georg Cantor. Um, he was a, yeah, he was a, I, I believe German. He might've been, he might've been, um, um, he might've been in Vienna. I, I don't remember now, but, um, but he was a mathematician who was studying, um, well, and basically, you know, invented set theory, um, which nowadays is often considered sort of the foundational sort of language of mathematics. Um, and he was really interested in these questions about how do you compare sizes of infinite sets? Um, and so as an example of this, if you take the set of natural numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, so on and so forth, um, then it, it, this is a little bit surprising, but just as an example, you can actually prove that that set is equal to the set of all, in size, to the set of all rationals. Um, so that's all fractions, you know, n over m for any integers. Um, well, it would, <laughs> can't divide by zero, but <laughs> aside from that. Um, and uh, that, what's so surprising about that is between any two natural numbers, um, you can find infinitely many rationals, right? So you'd expect that the rationals would be a much bigger set. But one of the things that he proved was that actually that's not, not the case. Um, and um, it, um, it was through the work that he was doing um, that, uh, uh, well, and just, just to kind of cap that off a little bit, um, while the, the rational numbers may be the same size as the integers, um, the set of all real numbers is actually strictly bigger. Um, and he sort of came up with mechanisms for given any set of a given size, there are sort of mathematical operations you can do to construct a set that's uh, strictly bigger and then that you can prove is sort of strictly bigger. Um, and, you know, this, this gets sort of really hairy and wild. And I mean, you can construct these massively large sets that just, you know, start to boggle the mind. Um, and, and that just fascinated me with mathematics. I mean, it was what really, you know, hooked me into, into the subject. Um, <clears throat> so where this kind of ties into computer science is that um, it was through his work on, on set theory um, and trying to come up with this kind of underpinning language for mathematics that, you know, initially, yeah, there was a lot of resistance to this in the mathematical world. Um, and it was actually through his sort of framing things in terms of set theory that you came up with Russell's paradox, which is this lovely little, you know, gem of uh, mathematical, logical, um, um, well, wisdom research, whatever you might want to say, that says that, um, and basically what it does, is it, 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 it um, based on the rules that they were using for to define set theory prior that, that um, Gary Cantor and others had, had created, he showed that actually you can construct these weird paradoxes. Um, so Russell's paradox basically involves defining a set um, that is the set of all things that do not contain themselves as elements of the set. Um, and so you get this contradiction because you can then ask, well, is this set inside itself? Um, if it's inside itself, it is, uh, then it's the case that, you know, you must define that property of not being inside itself. So assuming that it's inside itself leads you to conclude that it's not inside itself. But um, if you assume that it's not inside itself, well, then it satisfies the property. And so by the definition of the set we're talking about, it actually is in itself. So he basically encoded the liars paradox into this language of set theory that Georg Cantor had come up with. And this just sort of shattered, you know, all of, all of, um, you know, these foundational elements of mathematics, which, um, which, uh, you know, which we're starting to be built upon. Um, and 
you know, fast forward a little bit and you get to the, um, you get to the program of Whitehead and, and others um, where they're really trying to like solve this once and for all and come up with a unified sort of theory of mathematics that, you know, is, is just rock solid that they can't, you know, that, that they can, they wanted to prove that they could come up with a theory of mathematics that did not have any, um, any contradictions in it and sort of have complete knowledge within it. Um, but this program is ultimately what led to Kurt Gödel um, coming up with the, and, and he did this trying to actually, I mean, he was working on part of this program, so he wasn't, he wasn't trying to uh, be a stick in the mud, but what he actually ended up proving was that it's not possible. And so that's how we get the Gödel incompleteness theorems. And um, these, of course, are what bring us to, um, you know, Turing's incompleteness theorem or theorems, which are sort of a corollary of that. Um, describing the limits of what we can know with computer programs. Um, and so, yeah, so if I, <laughs> looping back around then, if I could go back and, and talk with Georg Cantor, I mean, he, one of the interesting things about it was that he also kind of went crazy. <laughs> um, he thought that he was sort of communicating with God and like that God was this infinite set or that like, I mean, it was this very sort of spiritual thing for him. And I don't know exactly what question I would ask him, but I would, probably have many questions for him because uh, he was a fascinating individual. I think, uh, I don't know if you're aware of the YouTube channel for Tassium, or Tassium, I think it's called, but I believe his name has come up a few times and um, in no way am I a mathematician, but I do recognize the name. So yeah, there's something there. Cool. Now moving on then to uh, software. Is there any software that is your favorite? It could be software which is current or software you used in the past that is no longer in current use. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the easy answer here and say closure. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. Yeah. Cool, cool. And is there anything about software that you would change if you had the power to do so? It could be any software, it could be software on the web or you know, an application or anything at all. If you had the power, what would you change? Yeah, well, aside from just more closure across the board, um, I think I would say um, fixing the web. Um, I think would be the thing that I would want to uh, that I would want to have done. Um, I don't know how much I need to say about that because I think we all, you know, most of us who work in that space know how um, you know how much baggage it's collected over the over the decades. But um, yeah, if if I could if I give it could give it a complete rehaul, I think that would be uh, to the benefit of the the computer science community. So then moving on then to some uh, closure questions. How did you get involved with closure? Yeah, so actually this ties in a little bit with what my talk is going to be about. Um, so I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but um, long story short, um, and, and, and just, just for reference, so I'm, I'm both doing a workshop this um, uh, uh, leading up to the conference as well as a talk um, about a soft piece of software that um, I started working on about a decade ago called Polis, um, which... Um, Again, I don't want to give too many too many spoilers, but um, uh, it, it, to put it very sort of briefly, it's a tool which uses data science for sort of listening at scale um, and synthesizing feedback from l large groups of people, so that you can kind of make sense of the opinion landscape that emerges in not just a, in sort of a one dimensional way, like what was the most popular opinion, but really, you know, where were their opinion groups? Um, what 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 comments you know sort of split the space, and where was there unexpected consensus? Um, so initially, you know, we built the, the very first prototype for this, this, um, this project in R, um, cause it was, uh, you know, 
uh, a tool that I was using at the time as a data scientist and was sort of easy to just slap everything together. Um, but as we started building up the system and wanted to have something more robust, um, we started looking at other languages. And I had been really, I'd been really fascinated by um, functional programming languages and had tried Haskell um, some, uh, um, some months before, some years before, um, and, and just really loved it. I mean, again, coming, coming from a mathematical background, just the feeling of this very kind of mathy language where everything's very kind of logical um, just really appealed to me. And, um, but, but, you know, Haskell also has kind of this reputation of not being very pragmatic and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, kind of was reviewing other options like Scala and, um, um, OCaml and, um, I'd done a little bit of OCaml at that point, but, um, ultimately, uh, it came to, I, I, I didn't, I don't really even knew how much I knew about closure at that point or how it really came on my radar, but um, started looking into it and just very quickly got a sense that this is a language that's both really well designed. It has a lot of the same kind of very kind of mathematically um, uh, cohesive design that, um, that, uh, that something like Haskell had uh, for me. Um, but that is also just very pragmatic. Um, and, you know, from everything from being built on top of, the JVM to um, uh, to um, to yeah to the to the the decisions it made around immutability mutab and such um, and so we ultimately decided to uh, to pick closure for the project. Would you say that these features like immutability are your favorite things about closure, or would you also include other things as well? Yeah, I think um, the, the top the top thing for me really comes down to the cohesiveness in the design. I mean, and when you hear Rich Hickey talk about, um, I'm trying to remember what the name of the talk is. I think it was his hammock driven development talk where he's, he's really just talking about, you know, sitting down and solving problems and kind of contrasting that with, you know, this, uh, cult of, of, uh, test driven development where we write tests and then, you know, build around that, but don't spend the time sometimes to actually think through, okay, what is the actual thing we want to test, right? What is, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? And like, what's the, what's the right way to solve that? Um, sometimes it doesn't even involve computers, right? So, um, and you just get this sense, um, using closure that he really did put in the time to think through every single decision that was made and, and come up with something that was really comprehensive. So, um, that having been said, the kind of components that I think, you know, fit into that really comprehensively that make it something really nice, um, are its data centric design. Um, you know, we build around data structures and closure and it, you know, it, it's, it's just a lovely language to work with from that. So I think it's the, it's really the thing that sets it apart is this combination of like data driven design with all of these functional principles, um, and just an entire language that again, is just really thoughtfully designed around these um, these sort of uh, philosophical pillars. Sure. It's one of my favorite things as well. I, I really like this idea that it's all data. That's pretty much what you're doing. You're manipulating data most of the time. Exactly. Yeah. And it's great for that. Cool. And is there any favorite function that you would like, you like in Clojure? Oh, God. I, yeah, I, I've been thinking about this one. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say... Um, I'm going to say compose. Um, I'm going to say compose. Uh, I, I, I was racking my brain trying to, I mean, I'm sure like 20 minutes after this interview, I'm going to think of something that I'd be even more excited about, but um, compose is just so simple and elegant and just kind of so at the core of like what makes functional programming so powerful, you know, 
take two or three or more or whatever number of functions in and like spit a new one out, you know, a machine that takes and builds machines. Um, just very, very wonderful. Absolutely. Fantastic function. Good choice. So moving on then to non-software questions, if you could be doing anything else apart from software development, what would that be? Yeah, I think that would probably be um, probably be math. <laughs> um, yeah, I you know I, I kind of looked for a while. I thought I might be headed kind of down the math academic route. Um, unfortunately, the academic math path is pretty pretty brutal. Um, I have a friend of mine, close friend of mine, who did stick it out. Well, actually, you know, I've got multiple close friends of mine who stuck it out in that path and are now you know not able to find tenured positions anywhere, and so. Um, so I think I may have dodged a bullet there, but, um, but yeah, if I, if I had, you know, unlimited money and didn't have to worry about, you know, paying the rent or anything, um, I just love math so much. Um, just this, again, kind of similar to the way in which in programming, you know, as we were discussing before, part of what excites me about is this ability to create worlds in this kind of digital space. Um, and I think what's really beautiful about mathematics is that it's, kind of a similar thing, but you're really creating, you, you kind of have more expressive power in that because you don't actually have, it doesn't have to actually be computable, right? I mean, unless you're, unless you're, um, <laughs> unless you're of the philosophy that believes that things, things need to be computable in mathematics, but, um, uh, you know, which is, which is a whole discussion, but, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the ability to sort of create these worlds in your mind with logic um, and, and explore these really beautiful logical structures and, um, you know, uncover relationships that are unexpected. And there, there, there's just a ton there that, um, that I really love. I can certainly see you have a passion for the mathematics. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Now, what would you do to unwind uh, for fun if you're not writing code? Solving mathematical problems, little Sudoku puzzles? Yeah, I, I was going to say, well, writing more code. Um, but uh, but um, no, so I um, very recently, my um, uh, kind of in part because of my son, um, been getting into rock hounding, um, going out and finding, you know, cool rocks. Um, so my son was supposed to do this class project last year um, and just anything in nature, kind of in the you know Pacific Northwest region here. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about a couple options and suddenly like the idea of crystals or geodes popped into his head and um so started googling around like huh i wonder if you can find crystals or geodes anywhere here in in washington and um ended up going on a trip to start finding the things and you know went to a couple different places and there was one location that we went to where we were just walking around and all of a sudden out of the middle of nowhere i just see this beautiful perfect quartz crystal just sitting on the ground and it kind of since then since then i've been kind of hooked now my kid is making fun of me that i'm addicted to rocks but um uh, so that's kind of been the thing that I've been doing lately that, that has been fun way to get out in nature and, um, you know, just do something kind of exciting. Uh, but uh, other stuff, I'm also really into rock climbing. Um, I think it's my, my favorite sport. So kind of between ro finding rocks and climbing rocks, um, there's a lot a lot there. I know what to uh, get you for Christmas, Dan. One of these, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, we call uh, Pet Rock, my pet rocks. It was a 1980s sort of thing. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. I, yeah, I remember that totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and part of part of both of those, I will say, is like I, you know, as as someone who's a scientist, um, I well, I guess I, a lot of people would say, you know, the physics or the maths are kind of the hard sciences. For me, I think you know, it's the biology and the geology that are the hard sciences because there's so much. It's, it's just so harder to know things, and things are actually a lot more complex because there are these really big systems built on top of 
simple ones that are, you know, hard to understand because they're kind of abstract in some ways, but like they're at least more kind of self-contained. Right. And so, um, so one of the fun things about rock hounding has been just kind of learning a little bit more about geology. Um, but, uh, yeah, as far as other stuff, um, you know, music, I play music. Um, sometimes I play video games. Valheim is a new video game that's been, um, that came out recently that uh, kind of took the world by storm and it's been pretty fun to play. Excellent, excellent. And any, I guess that would be a game you may recommend, but is there any books or films or music that you'd recommend as well to artists? Yeah, so I, I had to think about this one because, um, yeah, there's just so many good ones, right? I feel like I want to list 10 of them, but um, for you movies, I'm going to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so for movies, I'm going to say Burn After Reading um, by the Coen Brothers. Um, I almost said The Big Lebowski because it's such a classic, um, but uh, but Burn After Reading is one that um, you know probably fewer people have seen, and it's just hilarious. Um, I'd, I'd highly recommend checking that one out. For books, um, uh, there's a there's a book by um, um, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. called Breakfast of Champions, which is just one of the funniest books I think that I've ever read. Um, and uh, it's been a long time since I've read it, but I just remember enjoying it so much as a kid. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to throw that one out there. And then for music, um, uh, the Bad Plus is um, one of my favorite bands, uh, and they um, they're they're a group that does this sort of fusion of um, jazz, rock, and classical. Uh, and um, in particular, there's a song of theirs called Prehensile Dream, which um, is just well, so prehensile, right? It's just one of the most gripping, um, sort of um, compelling pieces that uh, that I think I've ever heard. Um, and you know, it starts off really kind of quiet, and then slowly builds. And at the you know, right at the peak of it, you feel like you're in this like vortex of of sound coming at you. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they they're also really fun in that they do a lot of covers of kind of famous rock or pop songs like. Um, their cover of Iron Man is just uh, just astounding. I mean, every bit as much energy packed into it as the original. So highly recommend right. checking them out. Well, thanks for the recommendation. I'll be sure to check that one out. Cool. So, Chris, uh, we're, we're heading now towards the end of our interview. Uh, before we close, I know you've talked a little bit previously about this, but would you like to give us a little brief introduction about your workshop without giving too much away? Yeah. So uh, so the workshop that I'm going to be talking about, uh, or well, the workshop that I'm going to be workshopping, is um, going to be about a tool that I've been building called Oz. And Oz is a little bit of a complicated tool to explain because it's, it, it's kind of turned into a Swiss army knife. Um, it started out um, actually as another project that someone else was developing um, that I forked because um, they, they kind of wanted to keep it more sort of um, focused on a particular use case. And I was, I was interested in using some other functionality that... Um, that uh, they didn't want to support. So I forked it and kind of kept, kept building on it. And it's sort of evolved from a pretty simple REPL tool for visualizing data using the Vega uh, and Vega Lite data visualization languages, um, which uh, incidentally are, you know, a product of the, uh, the interactive data lab at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And, um, what started out again just as a simple REPL tool for for looking at um, you know visualizing data turned into slowly you know oh maybe we should make it so that you can um, not just view visualizations but can also use Hiccup to sort of um, compose things together and have more kind of complex um, dashboards or documents 
And so then thinking, okay, well, if you can do more complex documents, maybe you should be able to write them out to disk as, um, as like a static file so that you could say like build a website. Um, and soon other features started coming in um, like, well, wouldn't if you had that, wouldn't it be great to have live code reloading? And that pretty quickly led to this, this idea of, um, you know, how could you, and in part, I, I'll give some credit where it's due here. Um, uh, Ariel, um, I'm forgetting his last name now, but um, uh, one of the folks at um, Amparity at the time um, had kind of thrown this proposition out there. How can we get some of the the beauty of the sort of fig wheel style, you know, front end application development into the data science world? You know, people have these notebooks, but um, they're uh, like, you know, again, like Mathematica or um, or Jupiter or whatever. Uh, but how can we um, how can we bring some of that into like the closure space in a way that um, you know that 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 um, that kind of mirrors this sort of joy of flow of development that we get with something like Figwheel? Um, and so I I started kind of working on that and um, built a little tool into um, in, in that uh, that lets you sort of use a namespace as a um, as a notebook. Um, use a closure, plain closure files, a notebook, and sort of watches and gives you this fig wheel like um, notebook experience with your um, with your closure code. So uh, again, kind of pulling back here, and I'm sorry, I'm already going to more detail than I should, but um, part of what I'm getting at here is that again, we've had this very what was initially a very simple tool kind of evolve into this very complex and very capable um, tool that has a lots of bells and whistles and configuration and. Um, you know, it's, it's very flexible. You can get it to kind of do what you want. And so as a result of that, it's been, I found that it's been hard for people to kind of get a sense of really everything that it is capable. And so, um, capable of, excuse me. Um, and so one of the things I'm hoping to get through with this workshop is both just give people a more solid kind of thorough understanding of everything that it's capable of, but, um, but then also go over some examples and just kind of based on what, um, what folks are really interested in seeing, um, you know, go down all those different avenues and see how you can, um, uh, how you can use it to solve different problems. Well, that sounds like a very interesting workshop and I'm sure a lot of people will be definitely tuning in to watch that one. Cool. Well, Chris, uh, thank you once again for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you and to ask you a few questions to get to know you a little bit better, uh, you know, for the workshop coming up. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there, like I say, are looking forward to the workshop. And I'm sure we'll be talking with you again in the near future. So, yep. Thanks so much, I, David. It's been you're great. You're very welcome. I guess if there's nothing else to say, then thank you again and have a fantastic day. Likewise.